Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 will be in verses 19 through 25 this morning. Next week, we're going to jump back into the book of Matthew. We'll be there in pretty much a stretch run. We should finish it out by uh, April or May, something like that. But this week, we're going to be here in Hebrews 10 as we look at the gospel gifts and Christian rhythms. Now, this isn't a band name. This is really a way of representing that there are things that Christ has done for us and that there are rhythms and responsibilities that we build into our lives in light of what Jesus has done for us. As we do this, we'll see that because of what Christ has done, we should draw near to God and each other. Because of what Christ has done, we should draw near to God and each other. So if you have your Bible, follow along as I read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, it's not always easy for me to tell what y'all are hearing versus what I'm hearing up here, but are you getting a pretty good reverb or echo or am am I mishearing that? It's okay. Someone give me some feedback. I'm trying to, it's okay. All right, all right, all right. I just want to make sure I couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't quite tell. I just want to make sure. A psychologist by the name of Gary Klein tells a story of a paramedic that he knew who went to a, like a family reunion, family gathering, and when she showed up, she spotted her father-in-law, and she was concerned for him immediately. She looked at his face, and she knew something was wrong, and, and, he, and, he, and she told him, you need to go to the hospital right now. And he kind of laughed because he, he felt just fine. He said, nah, nah, I'm good. And she was very concerned. She said, no, go to the hospital right away. And so he thought it was no big deal. He couldn't tell anything was wrong. We said, fine, sure. And he went to the hospital, and sure enough, when he got there, he had life-saving surgery immediately because there was a blockage in his heart. He had no idea that this was even going on. And so the question is, how does this paramedic, how did, how did she know this? The man felt fine. There were no kind of symptoms, normally speaking. How did she know this? And what scientists have figured out is that when there's a blockage in, your, in one of your blood vessels or arteries, what happens is your body's computer sort of diverts blood away from some sort of kind of extremities to your most vital organs. So your heart and your brain uh, get blood. And so it changes slightly the blood flow to your face. And it might even change the coloration of your face. And she, she couldn't tell, she couldn't really even articulate what it was that she noticed, but she looked at him and because she knew him, immediately she knew that something was wrong. And it was this kind of innate sense, this intuitive sense that she had from dealing with hundreds or thousands of patients over time that helped her know that her father-in-law was in grave danger. Now, you may or may not be a paramedic or, 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 or medical person who can deal with people at this level, but God's Word helps us diagnose that there are patterns in our life that kind of sh- show the same thing where intuitively there are things that you can sense or notice over time, and they illustrate something to us about our spiritual health. And the writer of the Hebrews here today addresses this idea. 
This church that he's writing to is a church in deep trouble. They're struggling with low commitment. In other, in other words, there are people who have made professions of faith, who, who say they're followers of Christ, and yet when they would look at their life, there was really no evidence of the fact that they were walking with Jesus, this low commitment. And this led to, for some, just outright departures from the faith. So people who made professions of faith would just walk away from Christianity altogether and just say they didn't want anything to do with them. And so this writer is concerned for this church, and, and, he, and he writes to them, and he says, here are some signs, some things that you can look for in your life to, to kind of prevent destruction. In other words, what are the intuitive signals that should tell us, hey, you're in danger here, even if maybe you don't feel it or see it clearly? And what he says here is that there, there are some things that Christ has done, or some gifts that he has given us, and in light of those, we have responsibilities in our lives or rhythms that we build into our lives that sort of help us assess our relationship with Christ. So we assess ourselves in light of what Jesus has done. And the first thing we see is that there are gifts that Christ has given us in verses 19 through 21. So if you look in verse 19, the first word therefore is, therefore. Now this is a signal to us that, that it's built on really the nine and a half chapters that have come before in Hebrews. In other words, because of who Jesus is, and because of what he has done, there are some things that, that we ought to do. So Hebrews begins by introducing to us the idea that Jesus Christ is better, far superior to everything else. Jesus is greater than Moses, the great teacher of Israel, the one who received the Ten Commandments, the one who led God's people through the Red Sea to freedom through the Exodus. Jesus is better than Moses. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is better than the prophets, the one who spoke God's words to God's people. Jesus is a greater prophet than the greatest of these prophets. But even more than this, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is better than the angels, these heavenly beings that you might dream of or think of, Jesus is better than they are because he is an eternal king. And so God takes all that Jesus has done and he writes it for us in a new covenant. But unlike the old covenant that was written on tablets of stone, Jeremiah 31 tells us this new covenant is written someplace different. It's written internally. It's written, God says, on the hearts of God's people. And this new covenant like Jesus is better in every way than these angels and these prophets than Moses himself, this new covenant is better in every way than the old covenant. You see, the success of the old covenant depends on our obedience, on our ability to keep God's laws, on our ability to love God with all that we are, on our ability to love our neighbor as ourselves, on our ability not to transgress, not to lie, not to steal, not to commit adultery, not to get angry. God's, uh, the success of the old covenant depends upon our ability to do these things. But the new covenant is guaranteed by the success of God's son himself. Jesus who does all of these things. Jesus who is better than these things. And in succeeding, Jesus brings us with him into his victory. Something he's already won. Something that is already done. So that the flow of the old covenant is like this. If you keep my commandments then I will bless you. The flow of the new covenant is like this, because Jesus has kept my commandments and I have blessed you, therefore live in a way that shows that this is true. The new covenant is better in every way than the old covenant. 
And the writer here highlights two key gifts that we get through this covenant, two key gifts that we get through Christ. And the first is that we get access, confident access, through Christ. On September 27th of this year, some nine months from now, Jews will celebrate Yom Kippur. How many of you have heard this phrase? If, 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 if you hear it sometimes in the news, it's, it's a season, really, in Jewish life. It's the most important holiday on the Jewish calendar. Or the Bible, our translations call it the Day of Atonement. And it's like Christmas and Easter for Jews. In other words, there are Jews that show up in synagogue on the Day of Atonement, and they don't show up the rest of the year. It's, 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 their, it's their Christmas Easter, their priesters. You know, it's the people, that, they show up that day if they don't, they don't show up any other day of the year. Leviticus 16 establishes this holiday on the 10th day of the seventh month. And on this day, what happens is it commemorates the single day of the year when the high priest would enter what sometimes is called the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place. And before this, he would go through a very extensive ritual cleansing, both externally and internally. He'd examine himself for any fault, any hidden sin. He'd wash himself. He'd wash his garments down to his underwear. I mean, he had to be spotless to, to enter the holy place. You see, in the Jewish temple or tabernacle, there's, there's the constructed building, and then there's one room, an, an inner holy room, separated by a curtain. And one day per year, one person, the high priest, if he cleansed himself properly, could, could go in. And you may have heard that he was, by law, required to, to tie a sash around his waist. Now, we're not really sure if that's because if he went in, he might have to be pulled out if he wasn't clean enough. But it's possible that, that if he weren't holy enough, if he hadn't cleansed himself enough, he, he couldn't safely enter. And on this day, it was the high priest's job to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And specifically, he'd offer a bull and a couple of goats. Now, the bull he would sacrifice to atone for his own sin. You see, he came, like we all come, with his own baggage, with his own sin, with his own brokenness, with his own rebellion against his creator. And so he would slay a bull and offer a bull there and sacrifice for his sins to make sure he could enter. And then he would take two goats. One goat he would sacrifice for the sins of the people as a way of sort of cleansing and atoning for that year for their sin. But then he would come to another goat, and this goat was a little bit different. This goat didn't die. Rather, the high priest would come to this goat, place his hands on this goat's head, and there pray a prayer of confession, placing on this goat figuratively all the sins of the people. And then he would take this goat and he would send the goat out into the wilderness and symbolically, like Psalm 103 says, God removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He would symbolically send the sins of the people out into the wilderness and sort of take them away. It's a picture of God's removing our sin through this cleansing sacrifice. Well, after all this is done, the high priest enters the holy place. Now, the holy place is significant because in there is the Ark of the Covenant, but also in there is, is a cloud, a hovering cloud. And this cloud is the very presence of God enshrined in this room. The high priest's entrance into this room is such a sacred moment that he would enter with fear and trembling. Why does the high priest go through all this preparation, the sacrifices, the cleansing, the washing of his clothes? Leviticus 16.2 says it's so that he may not die. Because to encounter the holy power of an infinitely, create, infinitely powerful creator God 
is to come face to face with a power beyond comprehension, a power beyond anything you could imagine. So why then is Yom Kippur such a big deal? It's because it's celebrating the single day of the year when the holiest Jew could briefly enter for a moment the presence of the Lord to offer a sacrifice on behalf of God's people. And in this moment, it's such a moment of celebration that that God's people commemorate it to this day. So when verse 19 says that we have confidence to enter the holy places, this is an unbelievable thing. Because before this time, what would you feel when you entered God's presence? Anything but confident. You'd feel scared out of your mind. Because not only do you have this great privilege of entering the presence of the Holy One, you also take upon yourself the risk of entering His presence the risk of encountering his glory, the risk of encountering his holiness in a way where you could be struck dead. We can confidently through Christ, though, enter the very presence of God. So what is it that that opens this access to us? Verse 19 says, we do this by the blood of Jesus. Verse 20 adds, we do this by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. In other words, it's, it's like there's this steaming hot coal, and we can't touch it. And Jesus then gives us an ability, a protection that we didn't have before. It's like when you go to your oven, and you reach in there to take out a pan. If you reach in there with your bare hand, what happens? You get blistered, you get burned. But if you reach into this same presence, into this same place, with a protective mitt on, you can touch what you could not touch. You can access where you could not access. You can openly go where you could not go before. Jesus Christ garbs us in his holiness, in his righteousness, and now where we would not even dare to go, we can boldly, confidently enter. You see, in the temple, there's a curtain this gigantic curtain separating the holy place from the rest of the temple. Now, this curtain doesn't just prevent us from accessing God's presence, it also protects us, doesn't it? This curtain acts as a shield. It prevents the the consuming glory of God from consuming whomever would enter the temple. Matthew's gospel tells us that when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, there's a part of this, you know, if you, you think of something tearing that sounds destructive. But what it was doing was actually opening access into the very throne room of God. Jesus' body, Jesus' blood, tore down the barrier that exists between us and God himself. And now people who are unholy and unworthy can confidently, boldly access God's presence. I mean, this is unbelievable. You can be the worst sort of person. You can be the worst liar, liar, the worst adulterer, the worst murderer, the most unfaithful, ungodly wretch, and confidently walk into the throne room of God without fear. This is unbelievable. In the old covenant, you could be the most holy person and you couldn't walk in. In the new covenant, you could be the most unholy, the worst person, and confidently walk into the holy place through the blood of Jesus. So let's think for a moment. When God's people come together around the table of the Lord, 
when we celebrate communion, we're celebrating in that moment the things that, that Paul talks about here, the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus, torn for us, broken for us, so that we might enter God's presence. This says that the blood of Jesus, the cup, and the body of Jesus, the bread, declare to us that we can walk in like we own the place. We can walk in like it's our room. God's throne room becomes our dwelling place. This is why Revelation says that the dwelling place of God is with his people. God lives with us and we can access him in a way that people could only dream of. We take the body and blood of the Lord Jesus in the Lord's Supper, certainly recognizing that we have this responsibility, this relationship before God, but ultimately in celebration of what Jesus has done. He's opened the new and living way, not because we are worthy, but because the sacrifice of Jesus is infinitely better than any other sacrifice. Because the Hebrews, the, the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and of goats could never take away sin. But God has through one offering perfected for himself for all time those who come through Christ. So in the old covenant, year after year, bull after bull, goat after goat has to be sacrificed. But in Jesus, once and for all, God has made an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Through Christ, we can come. We can come anytime into the throne room of God. But we don't come alone. We come with a compassionate advocate. Verse 21 tells us we've got a great priest over the house of God. Hebrews 4, the verses that Justin read a little while ago, link Christ's priestly ministry with our access to God. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We can confidently enter God's presence and when we're struggling, we can know we got someone right there along with us, a confident advocate at the right hand of the Father. So think back to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. What's the priest's job? It's the priest's job to go between God and the people, to represent the people in the presence of God. So there's this extra layer that we get from a priest. The priest goes on our behalf. And what, what Hebrews tells us is that we have a priest who goes on our behalf. Not only can we confidently enter God's presence, we can go knowing that we have the most powerful advocate in the universe right alongside us. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed an advocate? Uh, not too long ago, I was in a courtroom. There was a person being addressed, and this person had alongside him an advocate. We call them lawyers. And when you go to court, you want someone who can speak on your behalf so you don't say something stupid. <laughs> I mean, you, you walk in there and you take someone who can say better than you can what needs to be said. And I sat in this courtroom and I watched. This man stood with his advocate next to him and this advocate spoke up on this man's behalf. And I thought, this judge is going to throw the book at this man. And I saw that and I heard that advocate speak and I thought, this dude's in trouble. But the more he spoke, I could see the judge's heart turn because of the words of his advocate taking someone with him. Now, when you go and you're under trial, you want the best lawyer that money can buy. 
There is no greater advocacy than the eternal Son of God walking with you into the throne room to represent you, your needs, your requests to God himself. Jesus Christ is our great priest. Jesus Christ is our advocate. Hebrews 3 tells us that not only is Jesus our priest, he is God's son, and he rules God's house. So we've got a priest, and it's God's son, and he's over the house of God, and you're taking him in there with you to represent your needs to God? And then Hebrews 2 tells us that only is Jesus, not only is Jesus God's son, he says that we are his brothers and sisters. So when we go to see our dad, we take our big brother Jesus with us. Now maybe you know what this is like too. Now this happens in our house all the time. It's like, depending on the request, you know, it'll be made to mom or dad. Because, I don't know, we all got things, you know, that we're going to say yes to and things we're going to say no to. So if it's eating junk food, come to dad. You know, I don't know, if it's something else, go to mom. But what will often happen is one kid will get selected to speak for the kids. It's like, you go ask dad, you go ask dad. And they go and, and, and they make this request. And that's the picture here. That Jesus, our brother, goes with us and he asks for us. I don't even know how to ask this. Jesus, why don't you go ask dad? And God's word tells us that Jesus goes alongside us and advocates for us. Now, sometimes the way it works is like this. We're scared because we don't even know what to ask. Romans 8 tells us that, that when that happens, God's spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words, that God knows what to ask for when we don't know what to ask for. And sometimes it's like this. We're like a stupid little kid that's asking for something that's not good for him. Jesus goes alongside Jesus knows. Jesus is our wiser, older brother, perfect in existence since before time began. In the beginning was the word. He was with God. He was God. He's here with us. He's walking through life with us. And he asks for us things that we could never ask. We think this is good, and God knows this is good. We think this would help, and Jesus knows this will help. We take with us an advocate who intercedes on our behalf. We go there confidently, and, if, and Jesus says, I'll go there with you. I'll go there before you. Now, we tend to think of God sometimes too lightly, as though God doesn't care about our sin. As in, we, if we ignore it, God will ignore it. But we know that's not true because God punished his own son for our sin. God takes our sin very seriously. But we also think of God as being too distant because of our sin. Like, how could an infinite, eternal God care about me? Hebrews tells us that both of these things are lies. God tells us our sin is a really, really big deal. He went to such great lengths to take care of it that he sent his own son to die in the place of sinners. But he also cares about us personally calling us Jesus and brothers and sisters, his sons or daughters. We can confidently and boldly enter God's presence, but without Jesus, no one can go in. Jesus is the only way of access. Do you remember that goat, the one that got sent outside the camp? Without Jesus, we sin. 
unable to access the presence of God without being struck dead. The only way to access God's presence and God's favor is through the blood of Jesus. You can enter God's presence knowing that Jesus made a way for you, but without Jesus, you can't go in at all. So if you're here today without Christ, knowing you're restricted from entering God's throne room, would you turn to Jesus today? So these are things that Jesus has given us. What then are rhythms that we should build into our life? And our passage outlines three primary responsibilities that we've got. Because of what Jesus has done, here is now what we should do. And the first thing is in verse 22, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We've got to get close to God. Now some people approach the Christian life like this. We've got, we got our, our church clothes and our other clothes. We've got our church life and we've got the rest of life. But what we see here is that for the true Christian, there's no separation from Sunday morning and the rest of the week. It's what he calls a true heart in the full assurance of faith. I mean, it's absolutely essential to worship with God's people. But if we worship to make mom and dad or grandma and grandpa happy, without submitting our lives to God, we're missing the point. We walk in full assurance of faith by completely trusting Christ and then completely devoting every part of our lives to him. And then, verse 22 teases it out just a bit for us. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. So when we become a Christian, when we place our faith in Christ, what happens? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. That's an internal reality. We place faith in Christ and God cleanses us from sin through the blood of Jesus. But then we go on here and we respond to this work through baptism. It's this washing our bodies with pure water. Baptism is an outward sign of something that's already happened on the inside. So people who place faith in Christ draw near to God. How do you get close to God? I mean, how, how, how can you do this? I mean, Jesus has given us access. We can come anytime, but how do we get close to God? Sometimes we look for a secret ingredient. God, would you show me? God, would you show me? But the answer is pretty simple. It's right in front of us. We draw near to God through his word and through prayer. I mean, God's people from the very first days of the church have grown in Christ by receiving the word and communing with God in prayer. Now, we're still in a stage of life where uh, we're, we're still teaching at least one of our children how to, how to eat his own food. So, like, you, could, you can put a relatively small portion of food on the table, and I mean, that could take like an hour. It's like, don't get out of your chair until you finish that. Well, we could be all off doing something, and it takes a long time. Now, that, that's okay when you're two years, three years old, but you don't want to be going through your whole life without figuring out how to feed yourself. Now, we recognize that in, in the economy of God, there are designs and special needs that people have, but the ideal is that children learn to feed themselves. In fact, if you don't learn, then people get a little concerned about you. Well, what happens is we ourselves feed on the Word. We respond to the Word by talking back to God. And our problem is we're like, we're like the king of good intentions, aren't we? Like, I'm, God, I want to do better. God, I want to do more. God, I want to read your Word, but 
I'm tired in the morning, and I'm tired at night, and I'm really busy in between, so how do I do this? Well, in 2001, British researchers uh, did a study, and they had three groups. They took 248 people. They divided them up into three groups. Now, this isn't about Bible reading and prayer. This is about exercise, and we got good intentions when it comes to exercise, too, don't we? So they have uh, three groups. They've got kind of your control group. That's the first group. They've got the second group, which we'll call the motivation group, and the third group, which we'll call the plan group. The, the, the first group is the control group. They took these people, and they just told them, they didn't give them any special instructions. They just said, write down e each time you exercise. So write that down. The second group, they said, you know what, we're going to help you by giving you some motivation. We'll give you some information, some motivational speeches, some information on, on, on the positive effects of, of, uh, of diet and exercise, and some information on the negative effects of not exercising. And then the third group, they said, your job, like you get everything that group two gets, but, the, but you got one more job. You're, you're supposed to write down and say, on such and such a day, at such and such a time, I will exercise. That's all, that's all you got to do. That's the third group. So in the first two groups, the group that had no information and the group that had a lot of information, they found that 35 to 38 percent of those people would exercise. It made no difference what kind of motivational information they were given. However, the third group that had to write down on this day, at this time, I will exercise, 91 percent of those people would exercise regularly. So what was the difference? It wasn't education. It wasn't motivation. Just making it happen. <laughs> putting down a time and a place at such and such a day, on such and such a time, I'm going to exercise. So when are you going to spend time with the Lord? I don't mean when do you intend to. I don't mean what do you hope will happen. I mean how and when are you going to make time to know the Lord through his word and through prayer? at such and such a day, at such and such a time, I'm going to X. So, if we don't know God through his word, we cannot draw close to God. We have to make time for this. But secondly, we have to hold fast to the gospel, verse 23. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, when you're newly saved or a young Christian, it's easy to imagine that everyone who professes faith in Christ makes it to the end. But as you walk through life, you know this is just not true. People who once seemed to walk with Jesus no longer walk with Jesus. Sometimes they come right out and reject Jesus. Now, that's more common in other places. Here in the South, we do it a, a little differently. When we keep the, uh, you know, we keep all the, the Lord bless y'alls and bless your heart, we, we, we keep kind of like the, the, I don't know, the, the Christian culture, but reject Christ by the way we live, by the way we act. We don't commit ourselves to, to faithfully walking with Jesus, committing faithfully to worshiping with God's people, to serving in a local church. And for some people, Jesus is more like a cultural lucky charm than he is a way of life. God's word offers no assurance to believers who don't walk with Jesus. So how do we do this? Where does this fuel for this perseverance come from? Look at verse 23. He who promised is faithful. Our faithfulness comes as a response to the faithfulness of God. God always keeps his promises. God promised that he would send Jesus to die in the place of sinners. Promise fulfilled. God promised that Jesus would rise from the dead. Promise fulfilled. 
God promises that his son Jesus will return and rescue all of God's people. Promise fulfilled, or as good as fulfilled. It will happen. And there are a host of other promises that God is keeping. Hebrews 6 tells us it's impossible for God to lie. So we can rest in God's faithfulness and grow in our faithfulness to live out our faith. Thirdly, we're to encourage each other, specifically, he says, by meeting together. Verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We encourage one another in our Christian walk by meeting together. And we don't just meet together to meet. We meet to do this. We meet for the purpose of pushing each other toward love and good works. What's a habit? A habit is something you do regularly or don't do regularly. It can be good or bad. And the writer says some people are in the habit of not meeting together. And what he says is, the good habit is meet together. You see, we cannot grow in Christ if we're not regularly meeting with God's people. Now, I know, I know, I'm preaching to the choir here because y'all are sitting here this morning. But it's not just an individual habit, it's a cultural habit. In other words, it's not right for people who profess faith in Jesus to miss weeks or months at a time. But never pause to think what this means. Gathering weekly is an essential ingredient in growing in Christ. So how do you do these first two things? How do you get close to God and hold on to the gospel? You do this by meeting together and encouraging one another. So there's this two-stage process. Meet together, encourage each other. Gathering for worship must be a priority for every believer. Now we all walk into church every week with an attitude or a perspective. Sometimes we come in, we're empty. We need to be filled. We need God's word to fill us, God's people to renew us. But if we walk in every week and the question we ask is, what am I getting? What am I getting out of the sermon? What am I getting out of the music? What am I getting from Sunday school? What am I getting from the people around us? Without ever asking what God is calling us to give, we're missing what it means to be a follower of Jesus. God says our role is to meet together for the purpose of encouraging one another to love and good works. Now, if we all sit out there waiting for someone to encourage us, there ain't no one doing encouraging. The point is that God calls us to give, that God calls us to love, that God calls us to encourage, that God calls us to serve. Who might or how might God be calling you to invest? Why is this so important? This is so important because Jesus is coming back. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the day is coming when Jesus will return. He will take all the wrong things and he will set them right. He will take all the bad things and he will make them good, but he will also come and judge all of his enemies. So it's important for us to encourage one another so that we might be ready to meet Jesus when he comes. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word and repentance and faith. Ask how God might be calling us to respond, to serve, to encourage. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.